Father, this is our confession. When on the day, the great I am, the faithful and the true, the Lamb who was for sinners slain, is making all things new. Behold, our God shall live with us and be our steadfast light, and we shall ere his people be, all glory be to Christ. That is our hope. All glory be to Christ. We pray in the words that we read that Christ would be glorified. And in this sermon, Christ would be glorified. And in this new year, in our church, in our homes, and in this city, Christ would be glorified. We ask these things in his name. Amen. Well, good evening and happy new year. We made it, year 2023. For many in this room, New Year's and the time of New Year's is, it is a time, perhaps, of reflection and preparation. We reflect back on previous months and weeks, on our successes and on our failures, so we might know how we might grow further in the new year. At the same time, it's also a time to set goals, to rearrange your priorities, and think again on what you want to accomplish, where you want to go this year. It is here that many will turn back to books that they've read before, books that they view as especially important to them. Books that have a life-shaping and changing effect upon them. Many of you in this room likely do that. You return time and time again to books that you cherish. It is especially now, in this season, that we turn to truths that fundamentally shape who we are. And I can think of no text from the Old Testament that reminds us of these truths more firmly and grip us more tightly than Psalm 2. Psalm 1 and 2 have long been known as two psalms that work together to introduce the major themes and ideas presented throughout the book of Psalms. Last year we looked at Psalm 1, so this year we're going to look at Psalm 2 to introduce the year. And I say this, I say that it's such a, a crucial text for us because I truly believe this psalm we find nothing less then perhaps the shortest, clearest proclamation of the gospel from the Old Testament perspective. The gospel is why we gather here each week. It is why we gather and we sing praises to God. The gospel is a truth and there's nothing more life-changing Nothing more goal-orienting, nothing more priority-shaping than the truths we have here in the gospel. And that's what we have here in Psalm 2. So without further delay, would you open your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Psalms. Psalm 2. 
follow along with me as I read these words. We're going to read from the first three verses. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Treason and treachery. That is what's happening here in these first three verses. The peoples and the nations with their kings are rebelling against the Lord their God. If you're familiar with the Psalms, then you'll notice there is no subscript identifying who the author of this psalm is. Now, from tradition in Acts 4.25, we know that David wrote the psalm, King David. But we don't necessarily need that information to know what's going on here. In fact, I think David intended this psalm to remain, in large part, anonymous, so that we don't think to apply what he's talking about here to a particular historical context. And here's why. You see, what the psalmist describes here in these first three stages gets at the heart of all the problems we experience and we have experienced since nearly the dawn of time. We can identify with these words now nearly 3,000 years after they were first pinned. The natural heart position of the peoples of the world is not that of loving submission to a glorious God, but of pride and rebellion. Pride and rebellion. In this psalm, outside of David, in those who have aligned themselves with the worship of the true God, nobody is excluded. Nobody. David doesn't offer any qualifications. David... He doesn't say, why do the Philistines rage? Or why do the Amorites or the Girgashites rage against God? He doesn't say that. No, David is speaking more universally than just the people of his age. Rather, he is talking about a condition that is ubiquitous across nationalities, across ages, and across social classes. God has shown man the way in which he should go, that he might live long in the land, that he might prosper in all things. But rather than receiving God's instruction with thanksgiving, the people of the world have said, let us burst their bonds and cast away their cords from us. In the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, this word for cords here in verse 3, the last line, is the word yoke. That's how it's translated in the Greek. Yoke is an instrument used to control and drive animals. That's what a yoke is. This is how the world views a God who would make moral demands upon your life. The biblical law is seen in the eyes of the world as a tool used by a supposed God and his followers to manipulate and maintain power in your life. 
What you really need to do is break free of these constraints by doing all you can to succeed in living the way you want to live. That's how the world sees prosperity. Live the way you want to live. The key to happiness is self-expression, being able to make your own choices. These are the lies that have been told since the Garden of Eden. So in response to the so-named restricting demands of the law, the people of the earth, verse 1, they rage and they plot. The word used for rage here in verse 1 is the same word and idea used to describe King Nebuchadnezzar's response to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel 3.13 when they refused to worship the golden image of a false god. They give that false god no respect, no homage, and in a fury, Nebuchadnezzar says, heat up that furnace. He prepares a blazing furnace for their destruction. He rages against them. That's the posture of the world to a god who makes moral demands. Such rage is not isolated to just some of the especially crazy. But it dwells to various degrees restrained in the hearts of people. It dwells in the hearts of all those born into this world. That is what Jeremiah writes in Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick, Who can stand it? The heart is desperately sick. The heart is is wicked. Because this kind of rage is there. This kind of rage against God is there. And the heart's deceitful because it's very good at hiding the ugliness. It's very good at tricking us into thinking that we are far better people than we are before God. This ugliness which lies in the heart of the people of the world is not just something that rises as something unexplained or unnatural occurring out of nowhere. No, the text goes on. It says, look, look at what it says in verse 1. In verse 2, the people's plot, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together. The word here for plot is the same Hebrew word we found earlier in Psalm 1 for meditate. The blessed man, the righteous man of Psalm 1 meditates on God's word day and night. But here in Psalm 2, we have the peoples and kings of the world meditating, rolling in their mind treason against God, treason against the Lord. They take counsel together. Their minds are engaged in thoughts which stand in direct contradiction to the rule of their heavenly king, treason. 
global cosmic treason. That's what R.C. Sproul calls sin. Global cosmic treason. That is the situation David addresses in this psalm. It's the situation we face today. And it leads David to exclaim powerfully, Why? Why? You could go through in this text and you could add why in vain at the end of every line. Why in vain do the nations rage? Why in vain do the peoples plot? Why in vain do the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together? Why in vain do they do these things? That's the argument David is making here. Don't they know that such rebellion against God is totally profitless? It's vanity. It's not going to add anything to their life. It's not going to want one iota of lasting joy and meaning to your life. The argument David will prove through the rest of this psalm is sin, which is rebellious treason against God, will not add anything to your life, but it certainly will lead you to lose everything. Because... God has triumphed over all sin. God has triumphed and will triumph over all rebellion against his rule. So before we move on to the next section in verses 4 through 10, 4 through 9, I would be remiss if I did not add here, this morning if you have not turned from your sin, if you have not repented from living a life of treason and rebellion against the Lord, the maker, the God of the world, then pay very close attention to what the psalmist writes in the following lines. Because in them you will either find the terror of destruction or the joy of salvation. And if you're here and you have found eternal life, you've been born again, you've put your hope in Christ, then the following words for you are a shout of joy, And a call to sink deeper into these realities and these truths. So look with me. Verses 4 through 9. Here David is going to prove by the response of God and that of his appointed king that it's utter foolishness to rebel against God. Because he will render rebellion not only as an utter waste of time, but also as a dangerous delusion. Sin will be shown as a dangerous delusion because God will triumph Overall rebellion, he will triumph over those who reject his lordship. So read with me verses 4 through 6, where we see God's triumph first declared. The text says, verse 4, He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord holds them in derision. Here, God's immediate response is not an evil, vindictive laughter of one who enjoys inflicting pain. That's not what's happening here. Rather, the laughter shows that God is not about to be overthrown by the puny rebellion of people, of mankind whom he made. Mankind is not about to so-called loosen their shackles but will find that all their efforts to find meaning and joy outside of God will end in ruin. The imagery being evoked in this stanza is similar to that shown in the narrative of the Tower of Babel, where the people of the world unite against God 
in opposition, and in all their efforts, what happens? God responds by saying, let us go down. Let us go down to see the little building that these little people have made. That's the type of derisive laughter that's being expressed here. A laughter that says, you have no chance of any type or any room to succeed in your rebellion. You will not find what you're looking for here. He lays low their best attempts at becoming like God, and he scatters them across the earth. That's what happens in Babel. But notice in this text that God doesn't just take note of what man is doing like in Babel. He doesn't just remain aloof. God comes down. God responds to sin and rebellion. He steps into the scene of mankind's rebellion and he acts. Look with me, verse 5. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. The word for terrify used here is the word and idea present in Genesis 45 verse 3. When Joseph's brothers appear before Joseph and Joseph reveals himself to them. Joseph's brothers are the ones who beat him and sold him into slavery. Joseph reveals himself and his brothers are terrified because they know we're the ones who beat him and sold him into slavery. He could kill us right now and no one would be the wiser. He has all authority and power in Egypt to do so. They were terrified. And that is the emotion. That is the feeling that will fall upon all of those who are caught in their rebellion against God. Utter terror. This is a far cry from the empty platitude which says, which says God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Now, if you've trusted in Christ, that's true. Praise the Lord, that's true. If you've been born again, you've put your hope in Christ, that is certainly true. But such a platitude can deceive us into thinking that God takes treason lightly, that God takes sin lightly. Psalm 2 is here to strip us of that delusion and cause us to recognize that God is not going to leave those engaged in self-exalting rebellion against the one enthroned in the heavens unpunished. He will act, he will respond, and he will terrify. There are some, even among evangelicals, who would have you believe that God's response to sin is effectively passive. They would quote texts like Romans 1.18, which says, God gave them over to their desires. And there's an element of truth to that. Even in 2 Peter, he says, God knows how to keep the wicked under punishment until the day of judgment. There is an aspect where God does judge by letting people continue in desires that will never satisfy them. That is certainly true. But it doesn't end there. The judgment is more than that. So look with me. Look at the judgment. Verse 6. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy 
hill. Now, perhaps you read that verse and you're like, okay, how, does, how is that God's response to sin? How is that a terrifying judgment? In order to understand what's going on here, we have to understand a little bit about how this psalm fits in the history of the Bible and in the history of redemption. So track with me here. Follow along with me for just a moment as we take a a brief survey of what's happened, where this psalm is coming from, what David is really saying here. At the beginning of the Bible, the beginning of the history of the world, when sin first appeared on the scene, God promised that the seed of the woman would crush, the offspring of the woman would crush the offspring of the serpent, and he would also crush the serpent. This entails a defeating of evil and sin and death and a return for mankind to the garden, to presence with God, to fellowship with him, a rescue from alienation from God. By the end of Genesis in chapter 49, we read that this offspring is going to be a king who rises from the tribe of Judah. Then we travel through history and we get to the books of Samuel, First and Second Samuel. And there we see a king from the tribe of Judah who's anointed as God's king. In Second Samuel 5, God anoints David, the son of Jesse, as king over Israel and Judah. It is there in 2 Samuel 5 that the word Zion is first used to describe the place, Jerusalem, which David rescued from the Jebusites and established as the location on earth for God's name and glory to dwell. It's where Zion is first used. So then in 2 Samuel 5, in that chapter, immediately after David's anointed king, the Philistines rise up against him. And the Lord gives them into his hand and he strikes them down. More than that, in chapter 8, David goes out and wins victory after victory over all the powers of the world. He defeats the Philistines, the Moabites, the Amorites, the Syrians, and the Edomites. He subdues them all. He takes their shields of gold. He takes their silver. He takes their bronze, and he dedicates it all to the Lord. He does it all because the text says, the Lord was with him wherever he went. David went out to meet the nations who did not submit to the Lord. David went out from Zion to meet those who rebelled against his name. In that historical moment, David was the appointed king positioned in Zion. From Zion, David brought death and judgment upon peoples and cities and rulers who had not bowed the knee to David's king, the Lord God. We know from 2 Samuel 7 that David was not the fulfillment of of all, all the earlier promises. He was not the one to be the king in Zion. He is not the one. But God promised that the Lord would raise up another one after him who would be the fulfillment of these promises. A king like David who would achieve victory over all his enemies 
and God himself would give him the victory. Friends, David is speaking here of a time that has been promised but has not yet come to fulfillment, that has not yet been fully fulfilled. But this promise is foundational. It's foundational to so many of the other promises that we are given in the book of Psalms. Just consider with me, back in Psalm 1, these two Psalms are intricately connected. In Psalm 1, the blessed man is one who delights in the law of God. He keeps God's law. He has no part in the way of the wicked. He will be like a tree planted by streams of water. It's verse 3. While those who walk in the way of the wicked will be like chaff that the wind drives away. But those words often don't match the human experience. I think the apostles, most of all, would say that. Persecuted, beaten, crucified. How are they like a tree that's planted by streams of water? The answer lies in the realities and promises presented here in Psalm 2 that have not yet come to pass. God's king will be the one to vindicate the righteousness of God and show these promises to be true. He will be the one who will bring the sword of judgment upon the wicked. He will be the one who brings blessing upon the righteous. It is his exaltation and his action that will prove all the suffering and endurance of the righteous a blessing. And the rebellion of the wicked will be shown as a vain, dangerous delusion. It is the king. Now it is this confidence in the exaltation of an earthly king that leads the author of this Psalm, David, to write what he does in verses 7 through 9. Don't miss what's happening in these verses. In verses 7 through 9, David is presenting himself as if he is the promised king. And he does so because he's so confident that these promises will come to pass, that this is what the promised king is going to say. This is what is going to come to pass in the future. There are few more theologically dense verses in the Old Testament than what we have before us right here. So look with me at them closely. Verse 7, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. In this verse, the king whom God sets in Zion is declared to be the son of God. In the second half of this line, the text says that he is the begotten, he is begotten by God. This word begotten is the same Hebrew word used in Genesis to describe and indicate a son to a father. This divine sonship communicates a singular glorious reality that this king, the king in Zion, is going to succeed where Adam and Israel failed. He's going to succeed where Adam and Israel failed. Track with me here. In the Bible, Adam and Israel are the only other figures who are called God's son, both of whom are given commissions, both of them are given power and authority. 
Adam is commissioned by God to be his representative on earth, bearing his image and likeness. Adam sins in the garden and is exiled. He's exiled from fellowship with God and from the protection and security of the garden. Similarly, in Exodus 4.22, God names Israel his firstborn son. Israel is his son, calling them to be ambassadors for his name, for his name and glory on the earth. Israel, like Adam, they fail. They fail over and over again, and they're eventually exiled. Adam and Israel both failed in the calling to be royal ambassadors of the glory of God. Exile meant alienation from God and the problems we all know today. Death, conflict, suffering. That's what it means to be exiled. But when God's king appears, he will be shown to be the one true son of God who manifests God's glory and rule with perfection and holiness. He will truly be a son of God who will never fail. And because he doesn't fail, he's not bound by death. He doesn't experience worry. He's not worried at the nations. He's not worried at the people who taunt him because he knows The maker of the heavens and the earth is my father. It is this status as king and son of God that will give him unquestionable power and authority on earth to rule and govern over all the nations of the world. Look at verse 8. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. That's the father who's speaking. He's saying, ask of me. And I'll give the world as your possession. They will be your inheritance. It is nothing less than the maker declaring he will withhold nothing from his son. Whatever the son of God asks, the father gives him. And then to cap off this mountaintop of theological significance, in verse 9, The father makes one more declaration that seals God's triumph over sinful, rebellious people. He declares in verse 9, He shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Notice in this verse, the son's absolute triumph over the peoples of the world. The son's triumph. He doesn't say, you might break the nations. Or, I'm giving you the power to break the nations. It plainly says, he will break the nations with a rod of iron. Rebellion against God will truly and finally be judged when the nations are broken by the Son of God. They will be like chaff scattered to the wind. While the righteous stand as unbroken trees planted by streams of water. That is the power and the glory given to the Son. That is why the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous, because the Lord knows the way of the righteous, and He has given His Son all power and all authority to judge on earth and to reward. 
You see, the reason why David is so utterly astonished at the rebellion of the peoples of the world is because he knows God's victory over them through his king has already been assured. It's already been assured. That is why, if you're reading in 2 Samuel 7, which if you haven't done in a while, I encourage you to go there. It's an awesome chapter in the Bible. 2 Samuel 7, 19. David says, after God gives him the promises that leads him to write this psalm, he says, this is instruction for all mankind, for everybody. Do you know why? David understands everyone needs to know that God is already won through his son. God has already achieved victory through the triumphant king in Zion. When David wrote these words, he didn't know the precise identity of the king, but he did know this. You know, two things about this son. The son would be a son of David, and he would be the son of God. But we living in our current age know exactly who David is talking about, don't we? Earlier in verse 2, the king is called the anointed one. This is the word which we get in Hebrew is Messiah. It's the same word we get in Greek, Christ. Jesus Christ is the triumphant king over the nations. Jesus Christ is the son of God. Of him alone did God speak from the heavens and say, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. To him alone has God given all power in heaven and on earth. From him alone will the power and righteousness of God be vindicated on earth. From him alone will the, will the glory of God be revealed. Revelation 19, 15 through 16. Of him alone is it, is it said, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That is the name written on the Son of God. Brothers and sisters, if there is one foundational reality that should shape our priorities, that should shape our goals, that should shape our expectations for this new year, it should be this, that Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. That reality should be the very thing that shapes our priorities and our goals. It's why we're here. Now, perhaps you're here and you're thinking to yourself, how should these realities shape my life? What exactly am I supposed to do with these truths that you've just told me about? This would be the normal time in which a preacher might step away from the text a little bit. Ooh. Almost knocked that over. He might step away, literally, and he might move to application. But there's no need for me to do that here right now. Because David, he knows these words. He knows their power and significance. And so he calls for them to be acknowledged. He calls for them to be acknowledged, and he urges a response today. He urges a response today. Now is the time to respond to these realities, and he calls us to do so. So look with me 
at verse 10. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. The psalmist places the kings and the rulers of the earth in parallel again. And he does so intentionally because he's indicating to us that who he is speaking to now is the same people that he is speaking to before in verses 1 through 3. He is addressing those who have set themselves against the Lord. He is addressing those who are rebels, those who are traitors to the kingdom of God. Don't be confused in verse 10. He's pulling on the language of these first three verses, and no one is left out. You may not be a king. You may not be a ruler, but you should be warned. You must be wise. What is the warning to move from the prose, sorry, to move from the poetry of Psalm 2 to the direct prose of the New Testament? Let me read with, in plain speech the warning that's being presented. Galatians 5, 19 through 21. Hear this warning. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, revelries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warned you as I warned you before that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's the warning. That's the warning the king is giving here. Those who practice such things will not enter the kingdom of God, but when they are caught by the Son of God, they will be counted as vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. They will be broken by the rod of the Son of God when He takes it up in judgment. This warning is for everyone. This warning is for all of us here. For Jew and Gentiles, for kings and for beggars. So be warned and warn those entrapped in sin that those who practice such things will not enter the kingdom of God. No matter what they claim with their mouths, they claim to be a child of God, though their life they practice immorality, and God will say, Depart from me, I never knew you. And on that day, the Lord. Jesus Christ will break them with the rod of iron. Going back to Psalm 2, praise the Lord. Praise His name that we're not just left with a warning. We're not just left with a warning here. If we were just left with a warning, this wouldn't be the gospel. This wouldn't be good news. He says, be wise. How should you be wise? How should you be wise? Look at the end of chapter 2 and be amazed. This should amaze you. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And here's why. Because it leads you to His mercy. It leads you to His mercy. End of verse 12. 
Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Be amazed, be shocked, be in total awe of what he's saying here. What he's saying is that wicked, rebellious, treasonous people, people who have plotted against him, people who have conspired against him, people who are accounted among the chaff to be blown away can be blessed, can be counted as righteous. Only those counted as righteous can be blessed. That you who have sinned against a holy God can be counted among the righteous, among those who will stand in the day of judgment, among those whose leaf will not wither, and who in all things will even now prosper. Praise the Lord that you who are even now experiencing deep, tremendous suffering can count your suffering as your prosperity because you know that through your patient endurance, the Lord will reward you for all that you've endured. And the Son of God will make it happen. How can this be? How can it be that the Lord God can save a wretch like me? Here's how. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. The Son, he has made a refuge for everyone who would seek shelter from the wrath of God. How has he done this? How has the Son of God made shelter for those fleeing from his wrath? Here's, here's how. In the Old Testament, there's a blurry outline, but by the New Testament, it's crystal clear. This is how the Son has made a refuge for those fleeing from God's wrath. He took on the wrath that they deserved. He took on the wrath that you deserved. He died and was buried and was raised to life and ascended to the right hand of God so that you might be saved, so that you might have eternal life, so that you might be like a tree planted by streams of water. Jesus Christ, though knowing you to be a traitor to the kingdom of God, died for you and for me. Now, maybe you're here today and you're not sure how to take refuge in the Son of God. Here's how. Humble yourself before Him. Confess your sins. And offer yourself as His servant. And He will forgive you. And He will be a refuge for you. You offer yourself as His servant. Not because He needs you. Not because He needs anything you could offer. Not because you can curry favor with Him but because he's gracious and he's merciful to those who come to him as children, humble and contrite. That is how you take refuge in the Son of God. So do so today. Take refuge in the Son. Take refuge in the Son of God. But also hear this warning from verse 12, from verse 11 through 12. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. This verse, his wrath is quickly kindled, is translated perhaps more accurately in the CSB when it says, For his anger may ignite at any moment. 
the idea is that God's anger and judgment will come suddenly. His judgment will fall suddenly. Do not delay. Do not put it off. Today is the day. Now is the time to bow the knee to King Jesus and to take refuge in him. Confess your sins. Humble yourself before him. Give your life to him. Count yourself dead to everything that you were before and alive in Christ Jesus. He will forgive you. Now, fellow believers, this is the message. This message is the reason why we exist as a church. It's the reason why we are here. We exist to live this message. We exist to proclaim this message. We exist to raise up followers of Christ Jesus, the embodiment of this message, at home and in every place, because Jesus Christ is both Lord and Savior. That's why we're here. This is the message that David proclaimed. More fully, this is the message that the apostles proclaimed, and it's the message that we proclaim today. So this year, let's grow in our knowledge of the Lord. Let's grow in our knowledge of this gospel. Let's set priorities that will help us grow in our proclamation of him in all spheres of life. Let's set new goals. And let's ask ourselves, will this help me be a more faithful proclaimer of the gospel? Or will it distract? Praise the Lord for Psalm 2. Praise the Lord for the gospel. All glory be to Christ. We who were treasonous rebels, by the triumph of God, can be counted as his sons and daughters. We even now can say, with confidence that we can ask anything of God in his name, in the name of Jesus, and he'll give it to us. Not because we're the son, not because we obeyed perfectly, but because he did. That's awesome. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Praise the Lord for these realities. Father, we praise you that you sent your son to die for us. You sent him to be a rebel. You sent him to bear the wrath and the judgment that we deserved so that we might have eternal life, that we might take refuge in him. Lord, we pray in his name that you would grant all of us here in this church we'd become more faithful proclaimers of this gospel. This gospel would be proclaimed in our homes, with our friends, in our community, in this city, and everywhere we might go. We might warn and proclaim and admonish Jesus Christ as both Lord and Savior. We ask these things in his name. Amen.